Good morning. Uh, This morning we enter into the fourth of five weeks pausing our study of Ephesians in a series entitled We Are His Creatures, in which we are going to answer, deal with some of the um, most significant cultural issues in our culture and and making inroads into the church. Uh, We've dealt with the issue already of abortion, homosexuality, and this morning dealing with the issue of transgender or transgenderism. The series is available on our podcast. You can ask our secretary for a copy. The first message really being foundational, highlighting that a common, two common themes that run through these three issues are first a separation and an opposition being made between your immaterial being, your mind, your spirit, your soul, your person, and your body. So in all three of these issues... The argument being put forward is that what matters is the mind, what matters is the soul, what matters is the person, and the physical part of your being is unimportant, malleable, flexible. That's the argument for abortion. We now know the child growing in the womb is living. It's a living human. Of course it is. But because the child in the womb um, is deemed not a person, abortion is then argued to be morally acceptable personhood theory then giving value to life. It's also the same arguments being used to end life when people reach a certain level of um, cognitive disability. So personhood is something you and I then in this view move into and we may move out of depending on our mental state. The other issue is a real insistence on personal autonomy that comes out of a a view of ethics uh, rooted in uh, social contract theory. And if you set aside that term, the basic gist is this. The culture believes, and I think we can let this slip into our own thinking as well, that there can be no obligations, no moral demands that are not consensual, that I don't agree to. This, this is a country founded upon the revolt of no taxation without representation. And whereas in political theory, social contract theory as a basis for government seems to bear decent fruit, As an all-encompassing ethic, it fails miserably. Children, whether they consent to it or not, have an obligation to honor and obey their parents. You or I, whether the candidate we prefer gets into office, have an obligation by God to honor, submit, and obey our leaders. And I could go on and on with biblical, non-consensual ethical obligations. But our culture really has a hard time viewing any non-consensual obligation, which is why our culture is such a difficult time, nay, abhorrence in telling a woman, regardless of what you want to do, you must carry that pregnancy to term. Cultures can't do it. And regardless of your biology, uh, and, and regardless of what you want, you, you, you are, our culture says to, to um, issues of homosexuality, whatever gives you fulfillment, we cannot place a burden upon you don't agree to. Those two issues come to a head here this morning when we deal with transgenderism, the issues of trying to elevate and trump the person, the mind, the soul, and pit it against the body in issues of absolute personal autonomy. I will define myself. I will make the rules for myself. I will tell you who I am and no other. I'd like to begin our time then by reading Article 9 of our Statement of Faith. Um, Back in April 26, 2015, in the spring, just prior to the Obergefell decision, our body, in a rare moment, unanimously 
And I think it's fantastic. We can have all sorts of opinions about colors of chairs and stuff, but I take great pride that... No, I take great pride, though, when it came to matters of truth and doctrine, we spoke with a unanimous voice, unanimously adopting Article 9 into our statement of... Article 10, I'm sorry, to our statement of faith. I'm just going to read the first paragraph. We've titled it on marriage, but it's really marriage, sexuality, and identity is what it covers... When we read the first paragraph, because in one sense, this morning's message is explaining and defending this first paragraph. So here's from our statement of faith and our bylaws. We believe that human gender and human sexuality are God's creation and his good gift to mankind, that they exist for his glory and to fulfill his purposes. We believe that gender, male or female, is objectively fixed at conception and is not changeable. Nor is it a matter subject to personal opinion or self-perceived identity. Now, the next two paragraphs go on to talk about sexual expression, but that's really the issue that we're going to deal with this morning, um, is understanding this issue of transgenderism. I've got to move quickly. It is a communion Sunday, and the clock is not accurate. Um, I, I know, I know. And so we have much ground to cover before we sleep. So let's dive in. Answering transgenderism. I want to make one or two further caveats again. As as previously in this series, my attempt here is to show what the Bible says about this. My interest is in answering questions for those who call Christ as king, those who look to God's word as their authority. This is not a message that I'm going to be speaking to what what we should culturally be doing or what laws in our land should govern. I'm sure there will be implications coming from that. That's not my concern this morning. My concern this morning is let God's people, if we say, what has God said on this issue, have one mind. And let us think about it rightly and have the right attitude about it as well. That's, that's the goal. We'll have an ABF. We can discuss this further this morning. I'm sure we will. And so of necessity, I've got to be brief and I've got to move. So here we go. Trying to sum up arguments in, in favor of, in support of transgenderism is difficult. This is a relatively new Field. It's a relatively new experiment in, in society, and the arguments sometimes are somewhat contradictory. Um, but I'll try to deal with a couple of the main ones that I've encountered. I hope I don't misrepresent them. First is um, this notion that gender or identity and biological sex can be switched. Part, part of what makes the arguments in, in dealing with these difficult is there's really kind of two trends. There's one trend that sees gender and and sex, which even there we've got terms that are difficult. Let me pause and make another qualification. Technically speaking, human beings don't have gender. Words do. It's a linguistic concept. It's been brought in to our discussion in the last few years, and I'm sure if it hasn't already entered into common usage in the dictionaries, it soon will. But rightly speaking, and when these topics originally were spoken of, humans had a sex, a biological sex. Now, the problem with that term, and I think why it's fallen out of usage, is to say that humans have sex can be very confusing of what you mean. So gender, linguistic term, if you've taken a foreign language, nouns can be masculine, feminine, or neuter, gets brought in in its place. I'll probably primarily use gender in discussing this, um, just for clarity's sake. But here's this notion, is that gender identity, who you perceive yourself to be, is at odds with your biological body. And some of these arguments I've heard have to do with the brain receiving a a hormone bath that's supposed to swap shit over. But what you end up with is saying, I'm a female mind trapped in a male body, or I'm a male mind trapped in a female body. That's that's one line of argumentation. And it sort of appeals to biology, um, that this is some sort of biological mistake, which is 
at odds with the next main argument, which is that gender is a social construct, and because it's a social construct, society can reconstruct it. Along these lines, you'll hear arguments, well, you know, why, do, why is it that boys are associated with blue and girls pink? That's arbitrary. The culture made it up, and the culture can remake it up. And you've heard about toxic, max, toxic masculinity, and, and the culture's desire to cha- and change and, and twist and move and reshape gender norms. And so they say gender identity is a social construct. It, it can be made to be whatever we want it to be. Especially as our lives now are so much different. Most men are not going out by the sweat of their brow, earning their living. Many of us use our minds and machines. And so there's a lot more fluidity. And then as you enter into a a, a pseudo-Christian argument, there are those within the professing church who are making arguments for this. You'll you'll get this argument from Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there's no longer male or female. That We've transcended gender as Christians. That that might be something that existed in the past, but doesn't Galatians 3.28 say there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That Christ has erased gender. So we can be whatever we want to be. Now, that's obviously not what Paul means as he writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Nevertheless, in Christ, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man and nor man of woman. And Paul, as we get to eventually in Ephesians, we'll see, has instructions for husbands and wives and children. That yes, in Christ, we have an equality of being. Men and women equally have a dignity, equally bear God's image, equally deserve that honor due them as image bearers and human beings. That does not mean that men and women are identical in every sense. That's that's manifestly um, the case. Well, I'll respond to that more later. D, argument D. This is a slight nuance of C. So C argues that in Christ, with the advent of the Messiah, gender's done away with. D is that as we look forward into eternity, Jesus declares that in the resurrection, there is no marriage. Remember the Sadducees came to him? They don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. And they, they, they want to pose this big conundrum to Jesus of a woman who successfully, successively marries seven brothers and whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, in the resurrection, like the angels, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so this argument sees the, dis, the end of marriage as somehow also the end of gender. And so if in the eschaton, there's neither male nor female, the argument goes, it doesn't follow, but that's the argument. Then... Let's, uh, let's start living that way now. If gender is just a this epoch concept only, it can't be that important. Well, the, the simple response is, it's the culture, not the church, that believes, or should believe, that, that sexual activity defines gender. So just because marriage ends doesn't mean gender ends. But more to that later. But I think that's the fundamental flaw there. And the final argument it's the least, least coherent, but it, I think it honestly has the most power emotionally. Is this that love demands we affirm our neighbor and their choices? Um, you're, you get, as you look into these issues, testimony after testimony of people who I have no doubt go through immense suffering, immense sorrow, 
And here, finally, is a chance for them to find fulfillment, it is claimed. Here's a chance for them finally to feel whole. All their life, they felt like they were in the wrong body. Finally, within their grasp, is a possibility of real fulfillment to be themselves. How could you deny that? How could you not affirm that? How could you not... Um, According to Philippians 2, 4, put their interests ahead of yours. So you don't like this, that's fine, but affirm them. Help them. Love them. Be happy for them that they have found meaning. Um, that's, that's a powerful argument emotionally. And, and one that's put forward. That the loving thing to do, what you must do to be loving. And to flip it around, we all know this, that we're viewed as hateful or transphobic if we don't affirm fully other people following their truth, being true to themselves. I'm sure there are other arguments, but like I said, it, they don't always line up. They're difficult to track. That's going to have to be a brief sampling. The, the book that we've put forward, some other books and articles that I'll reference, go deeper with this. But that, for my purposes, is going to be sort of what we have to answer or respond or think through. Okay? So, a biblical perspective and response. If you turn to Genesis chapter 1, we're going to turn to the very beginning it's a very good place to start. Because um, we've got to really, and this is, this is what is helpful about this. If you wonder, well, why deal with this? What we're really going to do a study of now is a biblical study of gender and sex, human um, biological sex, to, to think rightly. The best antidote to error is the truth. And so this, I hope, will be an edifying study as we look closely at what God has done and what he's said about what he has done and to think rightly about it. So we've got to start in Genesis chapter 1. And, and this is where the whole narrative is important. The, the culture is coming at it from an evolutionary theory where, man, we're just the next step in an endless progression of change. So the entire back history of man is one of malleable change. We haven't been like we are now. We won't be like we are in the future. So more change now is just par for the course. It's a golf analogy, right, Dan? Okay. Okay, we'll just, we'll just move on. Um, and so in Genesis 1, we get the stark declaration that God created man. Out of the dust of the ground, he created everything. Ex nihilo, from nothing. And we've talked in our earlier messages about authoring something, being the creator of something, gives one authority over it. So let's just read the account. Chapter 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God, at the end of this, says it is very good. So obvious blanks here. God created gender or biological sex. I'm going to use them, like I said, interchangeably because I don't think we can separate the two. God created gender, and there are only two. That's, that's the first point. There's a lot going on here in this passage, but notice the interweaving of the singular and plural nouns. Verse 26, Then God, singular, said, Let us, plural, make man, singular, in our, plural, image, singular, after our likeness, let them, all of a sudden man's of them, have dominion. 
Jump down to 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And as we read the rest of our Bible and it becomes clearer and clearer, the God whom we serve exists in a triunity. Three simultaneous persons existing in fellowship together. And you come back and you read this, you go, that is fascinating. Here is a God who speaks of himself in oneness terms and in plurality terms, creating an image-bearing man and woman that he speaks of in oneness terms and in plurality terms. Even as in the next chapter, we learn the two become one. And, and, and we learn that we bear God's image. God created gender, and there are only two. Now I'm going to pause and talk for a moment about intersex. There are people born um, with malformities, with, with um, very different anatomies that are sometimes even hard to identify. My, own, my only point, I'm not primarily dealing with intersex here, is to say there are only two options. It may be difficult for us to determine, has God made a man, has God made a woman, but they are not a third thing. The text is clear, he made male and female. These are the two categories. Now, Jesus can acknowledge there are those who are born eunuchs, those who are made eunuchs by men, and those who become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. I think he's referring to some form of intersex or birth defect as those born eunuchs. He's aware of that. But this is not some new third category. There may be, there may be people who, until the resurrection, we may not learn, did God make you a man or a woman? But he did not make a third thing. That's my point here. God... Create a gender, and there are only two, okay? Next, God ordained gender. Oh, sorry, next, point B, sorry. God has united our gender to our bodies. God has united our gender to our bodies. Now, again, this point may be obvious, but it needs to be made. Turn to Leviticus chapter 12. And here's my point. Our gender, our, our, our sex, anatomically, is, is tied to our body. It's objective. It's observable. It's not a matter of opinion. I could prove this a number of ways, but one passage in Leviticus 12 will do. In Leviticus 12, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speaks to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, and she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation, and she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, all I'm going to say here is this. This command assumes you can identify a male and a female baby. And it gives you some indication of what makes the difference. If you can fulfill verse 3, you're dealing with a male baby. I'm just, we'll just zoom in that close, right? So it's, it's, it's tied to anatomy. They don't wait for the child to grow up and say, what do you identify as? The child is, is observed, the anatomy is observed, a judgment is made, this is a male baby, and then the rest, verse 3, is carried out in accordance to the law. That's, that's all the point I'm trying to make is this. This is the very point that is done with Jesus in Luke, right? In Luke 2, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So they bring him to the temple to pay the redemption price. Why? Because they know they have a male baby. Why? Because they can see his anatomy. And so it's an implicit assumption that male-female is tied to anatomy, tied to your body. 
Okay? That should be obvious, but I want to establish it biblically. That there's no debate. There's no question. You can determine who God has made by the biology. Because we are, as we argued in our first message, we are composite beings. We are spirit and flesh. And so we learn something about who we are from our flesh and our body. Okay, So God has united our gender to our bodies. I want to pause here and make a point here. In our last two messages, both Pastor Daniel and I have argued that you should not, but you are capable of, abortion. That you should not, but you're capable of, of homosexual relationships. So the argument's been one of oughtedness. A man has the power to do these things. He ought not to do these things. Here we get a stark contrast. Because you cannot and should not change your gender. You cannot and you should not change your gender. Let me explain what I mean. The terms man and woman, their origin, their etymology, even as we look in Genesis 1, the man and the woman are both considered man. The understanding was that all of us, men and women, are man. We're part of mankind. One of us has the capacity to grow and build people. And that was considered a big enough distinction and honor that they affixed that to the front. So there's man, and there's the womb man. That was, that was the understanding. So some of us come into this world with wombs, and some of us come into this world making seed. And as Jesus recognized, there are some who come into this room broken, and world broken with neither capacity. But those two dividing lines, coming in with a womb, coming in making seed, Nobody anywhere, as the result of any surgery, are bridging those gaps. Those are the fundamental divide. That's, that's, that's one of the fundamental divides between men and women, biologically. And regardless of what surgery or hormone therapy is taking place, no one is bridging those gaps. There's no one who has come into this world without a womb as a result of some surgery is having a womb. There's no one who came in making seed who switches over. There's no one who came in not making seed, now making seed. So the fundamental divides are in place. We're dealing with cosmetics. Or I'll read from a uh, John Hopkins um, doctor who got attacked for this. This is from an article published in the Wall Street Journal 2014, subsequently updated in 2016. Um, Paul McHugh, um, psychiatrist in chief at John Hopkins Hospital, published a substantial objection to transgender surgery in the Wall Street Journal McHugh writes that transgenderism is, in his view, a mental disorder that deserves understanding, treatment, and prevention. He adds, the idea of sex misalignment is simply mistaken. It does not correspond with physical reality, and it can lead to grim outcomes. McHugh compares people who claim to be transgender to those who suffer from anorexia and bulimia nervosa. Or the assumption that departs from physical reality there is the belief that they are dangerously that they are overweight. So, so he's t- making the point that when you're dealing with anorexia and bulimia, you're frequently dealing with someone who their understanding of reality, they look in the mirror, they see their body, they see fat. They're not. And no one suggests in those cases you affirm them, rather you help them think rightly about who and what they are. For the transgender, he writes, this argument holds, the argument holds that one's feeling of gender is a conscious, subjective sense that being in one's mind cannot be questioned by others. The individual often seeks not just society's tolerance, but affirmation. 
Psychiatrists obviously must challenge the concept that what is in the mind cannot be questioned. And that is part of the um, sort of extortion that takes place. We're told that if you question or challenge, you're fundamentally denying a person's existence. And in many cases, especially when this is applied to children, the, the threat is made, look, if you don't accept them, they're probably going to kill themselves. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a powerful, um, powerful argument, compelling argument for many parents um, if you even question this reality, that's likely what will happen. Um, when children who report transgender feelings retract, 70 to 80% of them spontaneously lost those feelings within a few years. So he concludes, sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women Claiming this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. So the point is this. We can very compellingly and very convincingly play dress-up. We can, we, can, we can present ourselves. We can very, very credibly and convincingly appear to be other than we are. But at the root level, men are not turning into women. Women are not turning into men. Out of your 37.2 trillion cells, all of them, except your red blood cells, carry your blueprint as a man or a woman within them. So God has united our gender to our bodies. And here is a bridge we cannot cross. We can convincingly present ourselves as one, but it is pretend. It is a pretense. It is not reality. Okay? That's, That's the next point. God has united our genders to our bodies, and we cannot separate them. Um, We cannot change them. Point C. God has ordained gender distinctions. God has ordained gender distinctions. Now, earlier I talked about how in our being and our dignity, men and women are equal. Men and women equally image God. Men and women equally have a dignity and a worth as image bearers and as his creatures And in that sense, we are equal. In many, many other senses, we are not. And all I mean by equal is interchangeable, identical. Okay? The most obvious inequality that I can see is that my wife right now is building people. Despite appearances, I am not. (laughs) Did not need to laugh that hard at that (laughs) joke. Um... There's an obvious inequality, right? No matter how much desire, no matter how much belief I have that I'd feel fulfilled, I cannot have a womb that a baby is knit together in. Um, Physiologically speaking, we could go through the list of bone density, math, um, muscle mass. Uh, A woman's night vision is better than a man's, but a man's long distance vision generally is better. We can go through the list, biologically speaking. But beyond that, there's other biblical distinctions. For instance, the curse from Genesis 3 is applied to men and women differently. My wife's experience of the curse and my experience of the curse differ, right? There's physical differences. There are relational differences. We are not to treat everyone the same. Yes, the same in regards to respect. 
and love and dignity. But listen to Paul's instructions to Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Four different, subtly distinct ways of relating to different people in the church. Two of them separated by gender, and two of them separated by age. Timothy is not to treat everyone in the church identically. There is distinction, and this distinction is from God. Okay? God-ordained gender distinctions. Listen to 1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Simple assumption. There's a way men act that can be viewed as distinct from women and how they act. Numbers 30 gives different guidelines for men making oaths and women making oaths. Nowhere in Scripture does God treat men and women in this sense as interchangeable and identical. And this is from God. And so tracking this back, it's not good for man to be alone. So God makes man and woman. It's better this way. The distinctions are good. God's glory is seen in the distinctions. They're to be celebrated. They're to be honored. They're not to be undone. And the most probably clearest place for these distinctions is the ordering of the church. Turn, turn to 1 Timothy 2. And I'm trying to find distinctions that don't only exist in marriage. Lest someone argues, well, these distinctions are simply not due to gender, but due to marriage. Here are distinctions that I think are uniform for men and for women. Here's one. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Not surprisingly unpopular in our culture. Paul has instructions for men and women in the church. Even now, in Christ, this side of the resurrection. Verse 8. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should also adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire, with what is proper for women to profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam is not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Now we've gone through a study of 1 Timothy. If you want a more extensive unpacking of the specifics, you can go listen to that series. All I'm trying to point out here is this. He's not just talking to married men and married women. Men and women in the church have different instructions, different expectations, different functions that they serve. And so God has, in many areas, instituted gender distinctions that go beyond the physiology. Okay? Point D, because we have to move. Point D, God opposes the blurring of gender. God opposes the blurring of gender. So here's the, here's the flow of the argument. God made gender. It's better this way that there's man and woman. And God could have made us as self-replicating organisms. The fact that he could do that is evidenced by the fact that he even made a few in nature that, that do this. Um, he didn't. And so God's glory and the goodness of his creation is seen in this complementing nature. Even as the woman is called a help me, a helper suitable, there's a correspondence. They're, they're, they fit. God's glory is seen in that. God 
creates and institutes gender distinctiveness. And at least in two key passages, if you turn to Deuteronomy, not Exodus, but please turn to Deuteronomy. Chapter 22. The reference is right. The book is wrong. We get this insight. Now, this is from the law of Moses. And I'm not suggesting that we are under the law of Moses. But whatever you make of the law of Moses is good. It's holy. It's right. And I do believe that we will see in Deuteronomy some understanding of how the Lord thinks about these things. So Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, there's a lot here, and I'm just going to enter into this. Um, I, I don't know, and I don't need to argue that he's dealing with transgenderism, that he's dealing with transvestitism. Some have argued this is a cultic practice. doesn't matter. All I want to observe is the following. God assumes the Israelites will have gender-specific clothing. There's women's clothing, there's men's clothing. Nowhere in the law are we told exactly what those things are. These are another thing that flows out of the differences in men and women. Because we're physiologically made differently, our clothing needs to perform different functions. Right? And so coming out of our biology, our clothing is going to differ. So we need different areas covered, different areas supported, different areas kept warm. That's going to flow out naturally. It's also then further to go into a culture where different ornamentations are going to be given for men and for women. God assumes all that is there, and he opposes the blurring of the two. For whatever reason that the man might want to wear the woman's clothing, and for whatever reason the woman might want to wear the man's clothing, God says, no, stop it. If you have a progressive view of, of human civilization that's moving towards some Star Trekian um, culture where we all wear the same um, clothing, identically, You're, that's not an advance. That's not progress. God is not pleased with the blurring of gender distinctions. Now, again, i got to pause here and say, just because God has instituted gender distinctions doesn't mean every gender distinction in our culture is good. In fact, it's going to take wisdom to think through the gender distinctions in our culture. Some are from God. Some, I think don't come directly from God, but are the natural outflowing. If one of the big distinctions between men and women is women can have children, it's fitting, it makes sense, even though God doesn't command it, that young girls frequently play with baby dolls. They see what many of the older women are doing. They get that that's unique to them and the potential for them, that their brothers do not have that potential. And so they play at that. So it's not commanded by God, but it seems to flow right out of God's design. Likewise, in Israel, the warring com combat rules were for men. The whole point of Deborah and Yael is to shame the men by appointing the woman takes Sisera down. And so it's natural. It makes sense that the boys tend, tend to play at warlike games. And I'm not saying it's sinful for the girl to join in the warlike game and the boy to have a doll. What I'm saying is those types of cultural expectations that we may have seem fitting. They, they seem to flow out of God's design. They're not, they're not righteous or unrighteous, they just, but they're not contrary to what's in nature. 
And then you get maybe a step out further, things that really do seem arbitrary. Why is blue assigned to boys and pink to girls? My wife tells me a little research, it used to be the reverse. I don't know. And then we can actually enter into gender stereotypes that are ungodly. If your gender stereotype for men is that they're promiscuous, they don't stick around, they're oafs and idiots, which if you watch most television, it gets confirmed, that's not a godly gender role. If the view for women is that they express their femininity by accenting their body and their shape, that is an ungodly gender distinctive. So this is a tough issue. I suggest that our culture largely sees the ones that are arbitrary and says, they're all arbitrary, so let's cast them all off. We need wisdom. Because what God's saying here is, to, to use a modern phrase, men and women, stay in your own lane. Your culture is going to have signposts, markers for femininity, the way women dress, the way men dress. And I don't know exactly at what point you're crossing over, but it ought to be clear what you are, which, which lane you're in. In Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. God is not a fan of, he opposes the blurring of these distinctions. And I'm not, I'm not saying each and every single one of the gender distinctions you need to adopt. But, but I think it ought to be clear to anyone who knows you or sees you or interacts with you that, that you are not rebelling against, but are actually well within the bounds of the cultural um, gender distinctions. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, that dreaded passage with head coverings, to which I will make one point. One point. 1 Corinthians 11. Let me read to you uh, verses 11 through 16. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for, from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, all I want to observe here, only point I want to make, men's hair and women's hair are not the same. There's a different set of standards and principles governing each. That's I think that's unarguable. I'm not trying to tell you how long is long, how short is short. All I want you to see here is the instructions for men and women relating hair are not the same. They are distinct. There's gender distinction, and Paul is upholding it. I don't have to work through exactly what does he mean by long or short. There's a distinction that Paul is saying is good. There's a way for a man to have hair that is shameful and disgraceful. And Paul affirms that because God is still opposed to the blurring of gender and gender distinctiveness, okay? That's all I'm trying to make the point here. We will not spend all of our time in the ABF on this. <laughs> that's, 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 not a, that's not a prophecy. That's a law right there. Okay, finally, finally, let's go to uh, point E here. God rebukes those who quarrel with their maker. So up until this point, I've just tried to establish a theology of gender. God made it. He's a fan of it. It displays his glory in a better way than it would if we were all men or all women. My wife reflects God's image and glory in a way that I do not. And if there are only men, if there are only women, it would be less complete, less full. It would be worse. 
And rather than blending that together and say, hey, let's make them all alike and interchangeable, putting God's glory on display involves highlighting the distinction, celebrating the distinction, valuing the distinction. We're gods, and he made us, and so we're under obligation to fall in line. Turn, turn to Isaiah 29. Because what you're really getting at, I think, in the more extreme versions of this. I mean, up to this point, you could be dealing with someone who's confused. And I'm not really happy with who I am. Like, no, no, this is how God made you. But when you're dealing with the more defiant aspects, you really are dealing with people saying, no, I demand the right to define myself. I will tell you who I am, and I will tell you what I am. And if I don't agree to it, I will not be what you tell me I must be. And, it's, and, it's, and that attitude is rebellious and wicked because pots don't get to talk back to potters and say, why have you made me this way? So I want to make the distinction. Confusion, unhappiness over how God has made you aren't necessarily wrong. Children can ask their parents, why did you do this? Why do I have to do this? Why do I need to do this? I don't understand. Children can do that. That's fine. Um, What they don't get to do is say, I demand you explain yourself to me. I, I disagree with what you have done. It's wrong, and my way is better. And when we cross the line to that level of insubordinance and rebellion, we get rebukes from God. So Isaiah 29, 16 You read, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. See, the two lies are, I have no maker. There is no God who made me. I'm the product of chance operating through natural selection. And if I have no maker, then I have no one to tell me what to do. That's the first lie. Pots are bad pots when they do that. The second is, I do have a maker, and he's stupid. He has no understanding. He didn't know what he's doing. We have a blind watchmaker. We know better now. This, this might have worked well for people who are ignorant and tribal, but we are so much more sophisticated now. And so, <laughs> if God really thinks this, he's kind of stupid. And that, and that attitude gets a strong rebuke from God. Go a little further in Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms him, what are you making? He didn't, didn't ask me. I didn't sign up for this. Or the thing formed, say to him who formed it. He, uh, sorry. Or your work has no handles. Which is to say, the way you made your pots wrong, be a better pot with handles. I'd be a better pot if I were a woman or a man. Woe to him who does these things. God rebukes those who ultimately will quarrel with their maker. See, we are under obligation to consent to be a creature. And in one sense, that's at the heart of what's going on in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 
The choice between the man and the woman is this. Will the man and the woman be God's creatures? And will they let God be God? And so the arrangement's pretty straightforward. God takes care of them and he provides lavishly for them. He gives them one law, one rule. And even tells them it's for their good because in the day you eat of the tree, you will die. Now, if they would accept that arrangement, let him be God, they can be the creatures. They would be his co-regents. They would rule the earth. They would never die. They reject that. They don't want to be creatures. They want to not have to take his word. They want to know for themselves. Thank you very much. And they're not sure they can trust his motives. Maybe he's keeping something good from us, they think. And so at the heart of the fall is the rebellion of the creature to be the creature. The desire to redefine identity and relationship. And so to the degree that that's going on, it's from the pit of hell. This is the height of defiance. I will not be what you have made me to be. I will pretend and I will demand that everyone else pretend with me that I am other than I am. That that is at its heart, and this is full-blown what is going on. I, I can't think of anything more defiant and foundational. Maybe someone claiming they're God, maybe. But that's the level of defiance we're getting at when you are, when this is full-blown, when this is full bore. I will define what I am, and I will define what I am contrary to what I evidently am. And I demand that you pretend with me that I am other. Application for God's people. We need to do this quickly. Okay. A lot of this will be repeated in next week's message, so I'm going to move very, very quickly. Okay? One, submit your entire being to God. Here's my point. We have a hard message. A hard message for people who are struggling with this, people who have left their gender identity and have embraced another one when they would come to Christ, when they would come and, and be reconciled with God, what, what God calls them to do is regardless, set aside how you feel, set aside what you want to be, set aside your identity, set aside your dreams, submit to me in my word, let me tell you who and what you are. But I don't want to, it's not what, it doesn't matter. I mean, we should be able to say it compassionately, but it doesn't matter. Jesus said, pick up your cross and die, right? So we have a hard message, potentially, to, to the transgender community. And we should say it lovingly. We should say it gently. We have a hard message. Therefore, we ought first and foremost ourselves to embrace that same message. Because if God has gender distinctions that go beyond reproduction, then that means that God has gender expression for husbands and wives that we ought to embrace and submit ourselves to. Every husband who doesn't want to be the spiritual leader Shepherd who wants to check out when you come home, you are rejecting your gender identity. Every wife who doesn't want to submit to her husband, who doesn't aspire to a gentle and quiet spirit, who wants to be something other than that, you are rejecting your gender identity. And we are hypocrites if we turn to the world and say, if you want to be reconciled with God, you need to submit yourself to his word. And part of what that means is you need to submit yourself to his identity and his definition of who and what you are and what he's called you to be. And then we're not doing it ourselves. We need to take our own medicine first and foremost. So that when people come into our community, they see that we are a people denying ourselves. A people who are submitting every area of our life to God. We're not warring with our maker. We're not saying, why have you made me this way? 
And that can push us out further. Singles who want to be married. Married people who wish they were single. People who want children and don't have children. People who have physical issues. God, God makes it clear. I make blind. I make deaf. I open and close the womb. God, God is in control of every area of our life. And we can ask him to change that. Paul appeals three times, take this thorn from my flesh. But we need to embrace where God has made us, who he has made us to be equally. We're the pot. He's God. We are not. Point one, consent to being his creature. Consent to being his creature. Stop, settle the issue once and for all. What he has made me to be, where he has placed me in life, how he has made me. You want to be taller. You want to be, this could go into so many directions. It could go into spiritual giftedness. But I want the, this spiritual gift, and I only got the gift that helps. You know, mercy. I want gifts of prophecy or whatever. So many ways that God makes distinctions among us. Embrace them. Submit yourself to them. Consent to being what he has made. Stop fighting with your creator. Finally, in Isaiah 64, God's people learn this lesson and they confess. After being rebuked for being pots who talk back to the potter. Isaiah 64. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hands. That's true for each and every one of us. Don't fight it. Accept it. Point number two, trust the goodness in his goodness and wisdom. You feel free to be confused. Why did you make me this way? Why'd you make this pot without handles? Like, that's fine. Paul says, why, why'd you give me this thorn in my flesh? I don't like it. That's fine. You, but trust that he knows what he's doing. Trust that he's good. He's not mocking you. He's not tormenting you. He means good for you. The man born blind, remember Jesus' disciples? Why did this man born blind? Did he do something? His parents do something? Jesus' answer is stunning. He was born blind and went through decades of suffering for the glory of God. I think in the resurrection, I think now he is satisfied. Hey, you'll get to be in the Bible. You'll get to be an encouragement to millions upon millions of people. You get to feature prominently in God's redemptive story. Jesus will use you as a point. He didn't know that. His parents didn't know that. They just knew they had a blind baby and they wish it was other. And they can be confused about that. They can even be in anguish about that. But trust that God knows what he's doing with you. Trust that he has good intentions for you. Point B, love your neighbor really quickly. Really quickly. Do not become proud. Do not become proud. It is so easy for us to look down on people who struggle with the sins we don't struggle with. It is so easy for us to make a list of the sins we don't struggle with. Those are the bad ones. Those are the, those are the really, really bad ones. You know, it's funny. Gossip's the sin we don't talk about. We'll talk about other things we don't struggle with. And yet, if we learn anything from Jesus... It's frequently not the notorious sins and sinners that offend him, but it's the self-righteous. Remember in Luke's gospel, Pharisees, very religious people. They were self 
righteous and justified themselves. And when the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so a few chapters later in Luke 18, Jesus tells a very shocking story. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you sneer at, if you mock, if you deride other sinners whose sins are different than yours, beware. These are very religious people, lived very externally moral lives. Now, those who reject their identity, those who reject their gender, are committing sin. It's wrong. We can't bend on that. But good grief, we need to get off our high horse. And we need to speak as sinners to sinners, as broken people to broken people. If, if you or I struggle with how God has made us, if you and I struggle with submitting ourselves to God and what he calls us to be in our gender expression, I think we do, then there should be a little sympathy, a little compassion, even as we have a hard message. Finally, point two, do not approve of evil. And we'll have to talk about this next week because we are really at time. As much as we want to not be proud, as much as we want to be loving, we are not loving our neighbor when we affirm them in this pretense. We are not being kind to them. We're not helping them. Statistics show that the suicide rate does not decrease but actually increases for those who transition the long-term effects, even in this life, don't seem to bless or help. And ultimately, we know, as far as coming judgment, we're not helping anybody. Rebelling at pretending you're other than you are is not going to bless you. Um, so so as, as tempting as it might be, Romans 1 puts the cherry on top of man's rebellious Sunday as not only... Do they know that those who practice such things deserve to die? They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so we've got a fine line to walk where we're not being self-righteous jerks, making snide comments, looking down our nose, being humble or being compassionate. We're also not budging on the issue of what's right and what's wrong. Now, that's a hard line to walk. The church tends to do one or the other. Pretty easily. The, the difficulty, wisdom, and integrity is, is, is walking the line in the middle. Jesus is a great example of this. Compassion to the woman at the well, yet dealing with her about her sin of her multiple husbands and her live-in boyfriend. Compassion, righteousness, the truth and love. I'm going to pray. I'm going to call Pastor Daniel up for our time of communion. I know we're running long. I, I appreciate your patience. Thank the workers downstairs. Let's pray as I call him up and we move into a time of communion. Lord God, um, just pray that you would help us to uh, receive the truth and speak it in love, that we would um, 
Guard us from self-righteousness. Guard us from cowardice. Give us the grace to receive what you have said, to embrace being who you have called us to be, and to speak the truth and love to our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.